all growing up, there was this innate sense in him that something was different and unique. He was a part of a family, but he didn't feel like he always fit in. And as anyone would do that was dealing with this sensation, he would wrestle with these thoughts of belonging and value and place. So it made sense to him then in his middle teen years when he sat with his mom and found out that he was adopted. Curious about his adoption, he leaned in and asked her to tell him the story, to tell him the background, and she obliged. What he found out was a pretty amazing story of adoption into a new family, a story of how at three months old, under a decree that was a detriment to all boys in Egypt at that time, they were no longer able to keep him safe, and so his mother put together this basket, and together with his sister, they went down, placing him in this basket, and they set him in the water, floating him in the Nile River. Through the reeds and at a distance, they would watch and wait, and this child would be floated to the palace where the princess, Pharaoh's daughter, would look on this child with compassion, would pull him from the basket with purpose and intention, premeditation. This baby's sister would run to the palace and would celebrate with the princess the finding of this new child and asked, begged the question, what do we do with this child? And she determined then and there in her heart and for all to hear that she would take this child as her own, unable to nurse this child because it was not of her blood. This child's sister gave a suggestion, why don't you let me take him to one of the Hebrew women that can nurse him and care for him? The princess seeing nothing wrong with that suggestion agrees wholeheartedly and in kind this child is taken not just to any Hebrew woman but he's taken to his own biological mother the mother who sacrificed her own child for his life and she would nurse him and she would with the princess at the, the palace help raise him in his adolescent years until she was no longer needed to care for him The princess would call him Moses. She would give him a name that was significant for their culture. And Moses, growing up, would grow up in a society of wealth. He would come up in a position of power. After all, he was the son of the princess of Egypt, who was, at the time, the most prolific powerhouse that anyone had seen in a country. Moses would come up in privilege and wealth. He would come up with the rules and regulations as well as the responsibilities that follow anyone in royalty. As he learned about his history, his heritage, his DNA, he had a crisis of life. He had known about the Hebrew people because 
all growing up, they were servants, they were slaves under oppression and captivity to the Egyptians. And Moses would have been a part of the continuation of this behavior. It was, after all, commonplace for him. It's what he knew. Sometime after learning his identity and wrestling with who he was, realizing that he was not ever comfortable in his own skin within the palace walls and the confines of his position. There was always something more to the story. Now he identifies the story and he is all the more uncomfortable. He'll leave the palace walls and he'll observe as he had so often before the mistreatment of his slaves, now his people. He'll watch one soldier beating a Hebrew slave nearly to the point of death and he will in haste react and we'll find throughout scripture as we learn more about the person of Moses that he is a reactionary leader. Moses will react to the circumstance, to the situation of his people beating his people. He'll run out and he will take the life of an Egyptian soldier And he will try to hide the body. He'll disguise the evidence and try to cover it all up. He'll run back to the palace, plagued with what he had done and wrestling with his identity and where he fit in and what had happened. And the next day, he will take to the streets again beyond the palace walls. And as he's walking around observing life with new perspective, he sees what was once his, his, his property, now his people, and he sees these men fighting amongst themselves. And he will go to them as someone who is a take charge kind of guy. And he will ask, Hebrew men, why are you fighting amongst each other? What quarrel do you have? Why, why do you perpetuate the already difficult life you have? And they'll turn in anger and dismay to this man, Moses. And they'll request of him, tell us, who are you that you were declared our prince? What, are you going to do to us what you did to your own kind yesterday and kill us? Moses, with absolute fear, will flee a life of privilege. He will abandon his people and the people that were his prisoners but that are now his people. Moses will move from a life of prosperity and everything that he had ever known to be the reality of his world and he will flee and with good reason because when Pharaoh hears and learns of Moses' actions, he will pursue Moses as a felon and will seek his life in death, life for life. Moses will flee to the deserts where he will strip off his priestly, his, 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 his prince garments and his, his bracelets and anything that would give any indication as to his background or where he came from. And he will leave a culture behind and he will find himself in the midst of the desert looking for the most basic of necessities, looking for water which was abundant where he had come up, but now he's got to search for it. And at the well, he will see in a distance that there's this woman who's being mistreated by some shepherds. She's being mistreated. 
Moses will again, reactionary in a deep-seated passion to help people, step onto the scene and he will shoo them away and he will look to this woman and he will not only assist her in helping her get rid of these attackers, but will draw water from the well for her and will give water to her and this woman in her excitement and her, her complete amazement at what just took place will run to her father. She'll run to her people and she'll go into the tent and she'll tell her father everything that had just happened and about this man, this obscure man, this, this nomad who was really from nowhere that had shown up and her father will demand, why didn't you bring him to me so I could at least thank him for his generosity to you and he will send a host of his people along with his daughter to go and find this man. There, wandering in the desert, they locate Moses. They invite him in. They celebrate. Jethro, the tribal leader, will give Zipporah, his daughter, over to Moses in marriage and will bring him in to what is now not only the first family or the second family, but this will be his third adoption, his third family. And he will move from a position of power and prosperity and authority and into the humble job of being a shepherd where he will clean not only up after the sheep from his flock, but his father-in-law's flock. These aren't his sheep. Moses will spend half of his life up until this point in royalty and position and the other half in absolute ambiguity seeking to forget the past to move beyond his mistakes the error of his ways the rejection of his people the death of his other people he will marry Zipporah they will have children he will establish a new life of comfort not in the sense of possession but comfort in the sense of people and he will make a belonging in there as he's doing his job as he's tending to his father-in-law's flock of sheep he has with him a shepherd's staff and as he's going along, it's, it's likely that one of his sheep is leaving the, the flock. And so as he approaches this sheep up the side of a mountain, there's a cavern dug out on the side of a hill. And he will approach and he will walk in. And there he will see a sight, a sight to behold, a sight of a burning bush. And he will look at this bush and he will be completely and utterly dumbfounded, asking himself, how is it possible that I see so plainly a bush on fire and yet it's not being completely disintegrated? From the bush, the voice of God will call out to him, Moses, Moses. Moses, knowing his name, not necessarily recognizing the voice of God, will cry out, here I am. And God will direct his attention all the more to Moses. And he will say, Moses, take off your shoes for the place that you are standing is holy ground. It is set apart Moses will reach down and he will unbuckle and unstrap his sandals and he will set aside his shoes and he will continue to gaze upon this fire and there from the fire, this voice, now the voice of God as we begin to recognize over time, 
will begin to talk to Moses and he will say, Moses, I have heard the plight of my people for hundreds of years. I have looked on them and I know what they have suffered at the hand of the Egyptians in captivity. I know the abuse that they have been a part of. And Moses, I have come to right all wrongs. I have come to set my people free. I have come to honor my word that I will be your God and you will be my people. And Moses, I am going to send you. I am sending you as my appointed ambassador into Egypt to call the community, the Hebrew community, and to approach the throne room that you once occupied and ask for my people's freedom. Moses, in absolute fear, he says, who who am I? Who am I that you would send me, Lord? I'm nobody in And before that, I was somebody, but the somebody that I was was somebody who who I never even recognized. I struggled with my identity all my life, and then I made mistakes that I, I can't even begin to share with you because they are so troubling. Who am I that you would send me? God speaks right to the heart of Moses. He says, Moses, I got a plan for you. I've got a purpose and I'm going to use you. You got to trust me, Moses. You got to trust me. I'm going to appoint you and I'm going to send you out. Moses, looking at the circumstances surrounding this conversation as though God is somehow unaware of what's taking place, he he cries out to God a second time what will be two of five objections and he says, but who are you? I don't know you. I call you Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, because I recognize that you are of greater power and greater position and authority than I am. But who are you? Who are you in my life? Who are you that you have the authority to send me to those people? And God will speak to Moses and he will say, Moses, I am that I am. I am the God of your forefathers. I am the God of Abraham. And I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. I am Yahweh. I am the one you have heard of. The one, the author, the perfecter, the creator, and the ultimate finisher of all life. Moses, I am he. Moses then turns to a little more logic. And he says, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with with this. They're not going to listen. They're not going to believe me. And God says, Moses, I want you to do something for me. What's that in your hand? Moses looks and he says, it's my shepherd's staff. And God says, I want you to throw down your shepherd's staff. And so near the fire, he lets the staff go from his arms and it turns into a snake. And he does what any sensible human being would do when they see any kind of snake, gardener snake or venomous viper. They run. (laughs) He flees. He jumps back from the fire and from the serpent. And God calls to him, Moses, don't be afraid. I want you to do something else, Moses. I want you to grab the tail of this snake. Moses, in curiosity, I don't know, but through his fear, obeys, and he reaches down, and he picks up the tail of the once staff, now serpent, but as he picks it up, it will turn right back into his shepherd's staff. And Moses says, now that was cool. (laughs) 
And God says, Moses, I'm, I'm not done. I want you to take your hand and I want you to, I want you to put it in your cloak. Moses, burying his hand into his garment, God says, I want you to pull it out. And as he pulls it out, imagine the look on his face as he looks down at his once healthy hand, but now it's plagued with lesions. It's plagued with decaying flesh. Many would argue that he had leprosy and that his, 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 his fingers were going to begin to fall from his hand. And it was an absolute disaster. Imagine the distress in his head and his heart when you wake up looking one way and in one moment something physiologically has happened that is beyond your control. He looks down and God says, now Moses, before you panic, put your hand back into your cloak. And Moses is thinking, if I do it too hard, everything's going to fall off. But he puts it back in and he holds it there and God says, pull it out, Moses. And he pulls it out and his hand is like new. He says that the serpent was cool, but that's awesome. God says, these are going to be the signs, Moses. You're going to go tell them that I am sent you. And these are going to be the two signs. And, and by the way, if they don't listen, if they tend to be a little hard-headed, kind of like you, Moses, you're going to go to the Nile River. You're going to draw water from the river, and you're going to pour it out on dry ground, and that's going to turn into blood. Moses, looking at the situation, is going to utter his third objection. We're going to read about that together in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, and we're going to read through verse 17. Seven verses together, church. I want to invite you to follow along. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with, with my words. I never have been. I, 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 I'm not now. Even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and, and my words get tangled. Moses may be recognizing the pressure of the situation, the significance of going before the throne room is concerned about being able to keep his composure. And we don't know if what we're reading is about a physiological uh, ailment that has plagued Moses from birth, but it would seem based on Moses' uh, recordings that, that here there is a season where he is having an, a, an intellectual, logical conversation free from flaw with God because he says, even though I'm speaking to you now, I am not eloquent of speech and I am not quick of tongue I get tangled up he is now looking for another reason of why he can't do what God is calling him to do first he says who am I then he says who are you then he says what if they don't believe me and now the the fourth objection is but I physically am unable to do what you're asking me to do God I can't do it God says in verse 11 Moses, I just told you that I'm Yahweh, the author, the perfecter, the creator, and the finisher of life. So let me ask you, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or they don't speak? Whether people hear or they don't hear? And whether people will see or they don't see? Is it not I, the Lord, Moses? I want you to pay attention. I prefaced this earlier, but I want to spend a moment on this because it's going to make sense as we go along through this story. Would you look, church, at the tail end, the very last word of verse 11, chapter 4. Notice how Lord is spelled. It is a capital L followed by three capitals, O, R, and D. Throughout Scripture, and primarily in the New Testament, you will see the word Lord used in scripture with a capital L followed by a lowercase O, R, and D. A great example is Acts chapter 9. 
Saul on the road to Damascus encountering Jesus, and he identifies him as Lord. What this usage of the word Lord is, is understanding that someone or something has greater power than you do. What it is not is recognizing God for who he is, and even more than that, who he is in you. God then, whenever you see throughout scripture, capital L followed by three capitals, O, R, and D, we need to understand that in the original language, in the Hebrew language, in the Torah, when you read that, it's Yahweh. And Yahweh is creator God. All-sufficient, all-knowing, omnipresent, creator God. He says, Moses, I created everything. I am the Lord. Moses, I want you to go. Verse 12. Now go. I will be with you as you speak. And I will instruct you, Moses, in what to say. But Moses again pleaded. Lord, please send anyone else. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, he said. What about your brother Aaron, the Levites? I know he speaks well. And look, church, I could not implore you enough not to miss this. In fact, it's worth highlighting. Would you circle and look? I'm going to explain why. And look. He is on his way to meet you now. Where is Aaron from? Egypt. He's under captivity. He's a Hebrew. What is he doing in the desert looking for Aaron or for Moses? Is it possible that God in his prevenient grace was already busy making a way for Moses when there was no other way? Is it possible that God was on the scene long before Moses recognized it for what it was going to be? And so I just want you to think to yourself for one moment, I want you to think on the prevenient grace of God and ask yourself this question, where is God already working in my life that I have yet to recognize? Where is God already at work that I haven't identified yet? God's calling me, he's working in me, he's changing me, and my fears are keeping me from doing what I feel God's calling me to do, but where is God already at work that I don't know about yet? Church, I can't even say that without getting goosebumps all over my body. In his prevenient grace, he sends Aaron, and he says in verse 15, talk to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with both of you as you speak, and I will instruct you both in what to do. Aaron will be your spokesman to the people. He will be your mouthpiece, and you will stand in the place of God for him, telling him what to say. And take your shepherd's staff with you and use it to perform the miraculous signs I have shown you. I love how God speaks directly into our circumstances. I love how God identifies where we're at and speaks to our situations. Let me explain what I mean by this. Listen to how God identifies Aaron and the responsibility that they have. He says, Aaron is coming. He will be excited to see you when you go find him. I want you to invite him into this party we're going to have. And you're going to take him with you. And you're going to speak to Aaron. And he's going to speak on your behalf as the two words, mouthpiece and ambassador. He is going to be your ambassador. I'm going I'm to speak to you, and you're going to be like God to him, and he's going to speak, and I'm going to tell you both what to do. Moses, 
identifies this situation incredibly well. Do you know why? Because growing up, the first half of his life, he grew up in the king's court. He would have sat with his mom and with his adopted family, and he would have witnessed whenever Pharaoh, little g god of Egypt, would speak. Very rarely would Pharaoh speak to the whole, the collective, the congregation. Instead, he would appoint an ambassador, a mouthpiece to do his speaking. And Pharaoh would speak to the one mouthpiece or to the one ambassador, the words that he wanted articulated to the congregation, all of those in Egypt, the Hebrews and the Egyptians alike. And there, that ambassador would turn to the people and with eloquence and with intentionality would speak verbatim that with which Pharaoh, little G-God of Egypt, had just instructed. Man, I love God. I love how cool and creative God is. Moses is scared to go to the king, and he's looking at this in the king. And God says, look, you know mouthpieces. You know ambassadors. I'm already at work, Moses. I got things planned you don't even recognize right now. I've got this. Here's the problem. If we take Moses' life up until this point, and even long after this point, here's what Moses is essentially saying. Please, Lord, I'm not good enough. Please, Lord, I'm not good enough. And he gives multiple excuses, five objections, three questions, one statement, and one plea. He says, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. God, throughout Scripture, church, I need us to hear this. This is one of those unique moments in Scripture where God speaks in a blueprint for people. He takes all of the guesswork out of it for Moses. I wish I had more conversations like this with God. Not the snake, (laughs) but the conversation. A majority of the time, God speaks through his will, through his word through circumstances, and he gives us a game plan. And his game plan says, look, as long as you're serving me, honoring me, following me, and being obedient to what I'm calling you to, there are a lot of decisions that you can make which will have ramifications on you and your family for generations and on the community that you're involved with. On occasion, God will speak. My wife and I, Stacy, we call it the do you know like you know like you know moment. Because if you know like you know like you know, well, guess what? You know. This is one of those moments for Moses. This is a, you know, like, you know, like, you know. And yet Moses says, God, I know, but I'm not good enough. I know, but I don't think you do. How many of us, how many of us is God calling this morning? And he's made it really clear what he's calling us to, but we're too busy superimposing on God why we're not good enough and how he's got it all wrong. I mean, look at this. We could ask the same five questions of ourselves. Who am I? Moses cries out. And he's not just saying that, he's looking at his, as he's saying that, he's speaking his circumstances. I'm a murderer. I have not been adopted once, but twice. I was given up by my original family. I was supposed to be dead. There was a a, a decree that was supposed to end my life. I left a life of plush and and prosperity and, and position of power. And I am a nomadic man living in a tent in the desert with a people that are not my people. Who am I? I have screwed up way too much. And how many of us, if we're honest, we know like we know that God is calling us to do something bigger than us. He wants to work in us first and through us, but we are too busy reminding God of how jacked up we are for him to use us. 
how many of us are plagued by our past this morning? And when you look in the mirror and God calls you and identifies you by name, you say, well, who am I? The second question in Moses' objection is, who are you? Two things are happening here. One is he's trying to identify this amazing being. But the second thing is he's really talking about reputation. Well, you want me to go into a community where I'm an outcast. You want me to go where they have a warrant out for my arrest. I'm a felon. I don't have, I don't have a good reputation with the Egyptians, and I don't even have a good reputation with the Hebrews. My reputation is tarnished because of my past you got to say, like, who am I going to tell him is sending me? Am I coming on my own accord or am I coming on somebody else's? How many of us, if we're honest, look at the mistakes of our past and we remind ourselves of how broken we are and how tainted our reputation is and that keeps us from the clarity of God's call in our lives. We're so concerned with our reputation. I have lost hair. And the hair that I have has turned gray. And, and the sleep that I have lost over the years of my life being concerned about what people think of my reputation is sinful. The, th- the third question Moses asks, not just of the elders of the Hebrews, but also of the Egyptians. He says, well, what if they don't believe me? I mean, what if I do all this that you're asking me to do? I show up on the scene and they don't believe me. God, why would anybody believe me? I'm just a humble shepherd in the middle of a desert, and I've done all these things. What if they don't believe me? And God says, Moses, it's not about you. It never was about you. You're not good enough, but guess what? I'm God, and that's enough. And then Moses, Moses, I mean, he, he's, uh, he's Doug Flutie. This fourth and goal, it's fourth and long. He's just throwing a Hail Mary trying to get out of this, and he says, the Lord, I physically can't do it. I can't do it. And how many of us look for reasons why we can't do what God's calling us to do? We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then finally, Moses, in absolute authenticity, and I I so appreciate this about him, gets down before God and he says, he begs, please, Lord, send anyone else. Send anyone else. Send the milkman, the mailman, the butcher, the store clerk. I don't, I don't care. You send Zipporah, my wife. You let her go. Don't send me. Moses is too busy looking for reasons why he's not good enough that he can't see where God is enough. Don't miss that. I wonder, how many of us this morning, how many of us this morning are so busy looking for reasons why we're not good enough to be used by God, why we're not good enough, that we can't see where God is enough in our lives? I just wonder if we had a right perspective of God as Moses is going to come to understand over time. What if we change these questions? I'm going to do a little exercise with us. I'm going to take the same three questions, one statement, and one plea, and I'm going to flip them around a little bit. What would happen if instead of going to God, we said, who am I? 
with all the reasons that we couldn't be used, and we said this, God, who am I in you? Who am I in you? You are Yahweh. You are the creator, the author, perfecter, and the finisher of all life, the alpha and the omega. Your word says that I'm created in your image, fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in my mother's womb before the creation of all time. You have a plan and a purpose. I know that because your word declares it. So if this is true, and if I've got an identity greater than anything I've ever done or greater than any community I've ever been in or any family I've ever been involved with, the question shouldn't be, who am I? The question should be, Lord, who am I in you? Who am I in you? Because when you identify who you are in Christ, it changes the game. Let's look at the second question when he says, who are you? And let's ask it this way. Who are you in me? You know, I, 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 I'm a learned man, and I know the characteristics of God. And if I'm creating your image, I think I can understand a little bit of what that looks like. But throughout Scripture, there's evidence of Christ in us. Read Colossians. Church, please read Colossians. That we are dead to our old self. The sinful nature has been stripped away. And we put on, we choose Christ in us. And so we need to ask the question, who are you in, in me? What is the fruit of my faith? Where is the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Where is the evidence of who you are in me? I want to challenge you to think on this for a moment this morning. And if you do not have evidence of Christ in you, you have to ask the next question, is Christ in me? Make no mistake about it. There is a definitive difference between knowing about God and having a right relationship with Jesus. Did you know that it is entirely possible to come to church, to read your Bible, to be involved in life groups, and to go through the motions of faith, confirmation, catechism, baptism, all of it. It is entirely possible to do all of those religious activities and still not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. How many of us are living our lives today? We're here this morning, and we live our lives with a capital L followed by a lowercase O-R-D, where we recognize that God is more powerful than us. He's at a higher position than us, but we haven't completely surrendered our life to the author and perfecter of our faith. We haven't declared, you are king of kings and lord of lords. You're more about your religion than you are your relationship with Jesus. That was what Moses was wrestling with. I know I've wrestled with that in times in my life. Who are you in me? We have to ask that. The third thing Moses says, oh, what if they don't believe me? And this is my favorite response. Who cares? In all sincerity, who cares? It's not your job to make them like you or believe you. It is your job to be obedient to what God is calling you to in your life. If you think that I've made a, a huge fan club and everybody's become my friend since I've been a pastor here at this church, newsflash. <laughs> if I spent more time worrying about those who don't like what I'm doing than I do those who are far from Jesus and need to encounter him, I wouldn't get anything done. And then he says, but I'm not physically able 
And what if we looked at all the excuses and the reasons that we're not able and we said it like this, I can't, but you can. I'm physically unable to do what you're asking me to do, but I, I can't do it on my own, but you can. Church, when you get to that place, I want to tell you, in many ways you've arrived. When you recognize that you can't do it because you're not good enough. You were never created to be good enough. You were created to rely fully on God to be your enough. And when you see this as an opportunity at life to live out to the fullest, that God is enough in every one of your circumstances. When you look at your marriage and you say, I can't, but he can, there will be victory in your marriage. When you look at your finances and your addiction to spending on things that are frivolous and irresponsible and don't matter, and you try to figure out how to get out of it, and you say, I can't do this. You know what? Get to the place, not just I can't, but he can. When you get to the place in broken relationships, broken relationships in the community with people that you don't like and for good reason, and you say, I can't, but in Christ, you can. When you approach your job like this, when you look at your work and say, I can't go through another day, but in Christ I can, it will change fundamentally everything about you. And finally, what if, what if we, instead of taking Moses' approach, we said, please, Lord, send anybody else but me. We took the approach of Isaiah, who in Isaiah 6, verse 8, after having an incredible encounter and a vision about angels and, 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 and standing before the throne of God, he says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And the angel of the Lord comes down. He takes a coal straight from the altar of God, and he puts it, this burning coal on his lips. He says, You know what? You're not good enough. But Isaiah, I'm making you good enough. Your transgressions, your sins are gone, and now you're good enough. And then God says in front of the host of angels, who should I send? You know what Isaiah didn't say? He didn't say, please send somebody else. Isaiah said, please, Lord, send me. I spent all week with my staff asking the question of why on Easter Sunday, we have a thousand people that show up to our church that we have to bring in every single chair that we have in this building. We have to put the chairs as close to the stage as we possibly can and fill it all the way to the back just to facilitate the number of people. But then we go back to business as usual the week after. And part of it is because I don't think we understand and I don't think we've adopted the, this idea, this mantra, Lord, please send me. We've got too many people that are pointing at the stage and said, but God sent you, and we're paying you. So you go do you, and we'll keep doing us. Oh, I got news for you. You don't pay me. I would do this for free. And you're not sending me. I'm being obedient to God. And every one of us has a mandate from God that has been made crystal clear. You say, but the Lord made it clear to Moses what he was supposed to do and where he was supposed to go. Well, he does for us too. He's given us a mission and a vision collectively. He says, your mission is to love me with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Your vision is to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, and by the way, location, I'm giving that to you as well. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Every one of us needs to stop pointing at the stage and saying, but God sent you, and we need to start looking introspectively and say, God, please send me. And I want to tell you, church, last week we had 12 people commit their lives to Jesus, fully surrendering to the capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D of their lives. 12 people, which in the last 17 months 
we know of 245 people that have fully surrendered their lives to Jesus as a byproduct of this ministry. But this ministry is not about me. It cannot be about what happens on Sunday morning. I've got a captive audience for 40 minutes and that's it. I'm limited in what I can do. But what we can do as a host, an army of those committed to Christ and having the attitude that says, Lord, send me. Send me to my work. Send me to my home. Send me to my community. You send me to the Blair Soccer League. You send me to the Blair Softball League. You send me to the Baseball League. Lord, you send me into Homana. You send, Lord, send me. When we take this as our personal responsibility, last week will pale in comparison to what we will experience as a church every week. When you are on mission for Christ and realize that you're not good enough, but you don't have to be because God is, and you're obedient to him working in and through you, it will change Blair. It will change Washington County. It will change Nebraska. It will change our country, our world, and it will change eternity. But we have to stop making excuses about why God could never use us and start making ourselves obedient to the God who declares he wants to use us. Church, I want to share a statistic with you that really makes me mad. There's about 14 churches in our community. 14. Hypothetically, this is a hyperbole. I'm not good with math, so stay with me for a minute. Let's just say that every church in this community could fit 300 people. And I think what I've been told is most churches sit about 80 to 120. But let's just say we'll give everybody big, big benefit. They could all seat 300 people. If all 14 churches were filled to capacity, 14 churches, 300 people. What's that, 4,200 people? I'm looking for somebody who knows math. Somebody tell, all right, cool. I've got a lot of yeses. I'm not smarter than a fourth grader, don't ask. I was just informed that Blair is now over 9,000 people and that we have the potential to double in size over the next five years. Let's just stay with where we're at right now. If Blair is 9,000 people and all these churches hypothetically are packed with 300 people apiece, that's 4,200. That's less than half of the people in our community that are dying that don't know Jesus. What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing making excuses for why God can't use us? I want to remind you why I'm standing here in front of you today. Make no mistake about it. I'm here because I believe that we are called to be a a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. The only way that's going to happen is if we're on mission for Christ and allow him to use us, to work in us and through us. Can I stop making excuses? We have to. If every one of us was faithful and obedient to what God's calling us to, and make no mistake about it, I said that like five times today because you need to catch this stuff. If you stop looking for all the reasons why God couldn't use you and start seeing how God is going to use you, then every one of you went and reached your community next week, we wouldn't have enough seats in the worship center right now to fit everybody. That's a true statement. Yep, yep. Come on. Come on, you guys. This is the most important thing in the world. Not who Scott Frost is recruiting. Guys, I, I'm a little fired up today because there's nothing that matters more than this. It just isn't. So I want to address quickly, what are the excuses that you're making that are keeping you from fully surrendering to God in your life? Can I talk to you for just a moment about the sin? 
Here's my problem with how we view sin. It's important that we know what scripture says about sin and what God, how God views sin. When we come to God fully repentant and say, Lord, I screwed up. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? The Bible says that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. Again, no mathematician, but I know enough to know that a line without two points is infinite. So if God has infinitely removed our transgressions from us, what right do we have to hang on to him and remind God? Oh, let me tell you about scripture about reminding God. Do you know that the Bible says that God has buried our sins in a sea of forgiveness? Thousands of feet below in absolute darkness and obscurity where you can't see it anymore. If God has buried it to where they can't be seen by him or anybody else, what are we doing reminding him? He looks at you and says, what are you talking about? And, And if you want to make God laugh, Tell him what you can't do. So what's, what's keeping you from fully surrendering to God today? Uh, second question, what's God calling you to? What is your clear call? I've already been really specific about what God's called us to in Scripture. Matthew 22, 36, 37. Matthew 28, 19. Acts 1, 8. And that's just the beginning. I'm just scratching the surface. Those are just three of the most primary uh, responsibilities we have as believers in the faith. Guys, guys, you, every one of you, are a part of something so much bigger collectively. You're not just a mechanic, you're not just a contractor. You're not just a doctor. You're not just a stay-at-home mom. You're not just a salesman. You're not just a, 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 a milkman. I don't, I, I, you're just not. You're not just a financial guy. You are an ambassador, a spokesperson for God that he is sending. And he says, you don't worry about it. I'm going to give you what to say. You just go be obedient. Which leads me to my third question. Who's your Aaron? Who's your Aaron? God never created us to do life and ministry alone. Some of us are so ashamed of our past that we want to invite people into our present so that we can move into our future. But what God has called us to is Aaron. He didn't tell Moses, you're going to do this on your own, Moses. He gave him somebody to do life and ministry with. Guys, I've got an Aaron. I've got multiple errands. I got many. I look out on you right now, my friends and my family. I've got countless errands right now that I'm doing life and ministry. Pastor Alex is an errand to me. I look at God and I tell God why we can't do something. And Aaron's, my Aaron here, he says, in the nicest way Alex can say, I don't think he can be me. And he says, you're an idiot. <laughs> you're telling me we can't do this in the next 12 months? Do you remember what God has done in the last 17 months at the church? I've got my errands. My wife is one of my errands. Look, I'm going to finish with this. It matters to us so much that you're involved in community, that you're doing life and ministry together, that you're known, that we want to help you get connected. We have a ministry dedicated to this purpose, that you would get connected to God, that you would get connected to the church, and that you would get connected to one another. We can't do it on our own. Not supposed to. Never called to. We have to fully rely on God. Stop making excuses. Declare to God, please send me. I'm, I'm, I'm your guy. Put me in, coach. And we need to have an Aaron in our lives. Hey, the bad news today 
many of you here are, 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 you're probably thinking about your past and you're reminding yourself that you're not good enough. Just like Moses did. But I got good news for you. You don't have to be good enough because God is enough. You just get to go live in his enoughness. Is that a word? When each one of us fully dies to ourself and fully surrenders to Jesus and fully adopts his word, will, and way to our lives, our lives will never be the same again. Our church will never be the same again. Our community will never be the same again. Our state will never be the same again. Our nation will never be the same again. Our world will never be the same again. And eternity will never be the same again.